The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. The title of my message for you today is Faith in the Furnace. Faith in the Furnace. Start with a question. If people were to ask, what are you known for? Let me phrase it like this. What things do you stand for? Are there things that you are resolute on, unwilling to bend in? And I think it's an important question to consider because at the end of the day, if you don't stand for something, you're liable to fall for anything. You know, there's a whole group of people that in this way kind of resemble weather vanes. You know, a, a, weather vanes is, a weather vane is characterized by the fact that it just twists and turns and changes depending on which way the wind is blowing. We, we don't want to be like a weather, a weather vane. We want to be more like a compass. Now, unlike weather vanes, compasses hold steady and remain aligned to a direction And they continue to remind us where true north is, regardless of what's happening all around them circumstantially. And that's exactly what we want to be like. And it's what the three guys at the heart of our story this morning were like. We're going to see these three young Hebrew men take a bold, courageous stance for their faith in God in defiance of a pagan king. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace is an absolute classic. It's one of the most beloved stories in all of the Bible, and for good reason. But, but more than just being a classic Bible story, it's also instructive. And so for us, by looking at and considering the boldness of their faith, we're going to learn and be inspired by their faith to stand up for God in defiance of the times in which we live. So with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and dive into our text beginning in verse 1. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore... As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, and so here the context is laid for our story, and we have King Nebuchadnezzar erecting this statue and commanding all of the people to either bow 
or burn. And that's the first point in our outline this morning. If you want to go ahead and fill that in. Where did this come from? Well, you may recall how in the last chapter, the king had a dream of this polymetallic statue. And in this dream, the statue's head was made of gold, its chest and arms were made of silver, its belly and thighs were made of bronze, and the legs were made of iron. And Daniel was brought in before the king, and he gave the king not only his dream, but he interpreted it for him. And he told him that the various metals represented other kingdoms that would arise on the world scene and succeed the Babylonian Empire. Well, here we are just one chapter later, and we find Nebuchadnezzar essentially building that statue that he saw in his dream. However, you'll notice with me that instead of making it out of the various metals that he saw in his dream, he just covers the whole thing in gold. Now, why would he do that? Well, if you'll recall, Daniel told him, King, you are the head of gold. And so by making the whole statue out of gold, it was Nebuchadnezzar's way of essentially defying what God told him about these other kingdoms supplanting or taking the place of Babylon. This was his way of saying, I don't care what God says, my kingdom, the kingdom of gold, is going to last and remain forever. And so he sets up this statue and, and what he built was quite impressive. Even if it had odd proportions, we see that it was 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. So that translates to roughly 90 feet high, but only nine feet wide. So I guess maybe picture a totem pole or something like that. And if the height of the statue was impressive, he set it on the plane so it could be seen from miles away. But in addition, the fact that it was covered in gold would have produced this dazzling, blinding light as the Middle Eastern sun beat against it and bounced off it. And this would have made it difficult to even look at in the middle of the day, which perhaps was the desired effect. It would have appeared like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, so you couldn't stare at it. And obviously, Nebuchadnezzar was quite impressed with what he had built. We know that because at the dedication service, he invites all of his diplomats and all of the dignitaries, as well as people from every nation and language to come and take part in the festivities. And once they arrived, everyone's encouraged. Okay, as soon as you hear the sound of the music begin to play, you're to fall down and bow in worship of the image. And by the way, for those not wanting to participate, alternative arrangements have been made. There's a fiery furnace and you'll be thrown into it, which I'm sure was a powerful motivating force for those who were on the fence about whether or not they wanted to participate. And yet what we're about to see is that despite these threats, there were three, three out of the entire crowd, perhaps numbering in the hundreds of thousands, there were three who refused to bow. And their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You say, why didn't they just participate? Well, for them, the king's mandate posed a significant problem. If you go back to the Hebrew law in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, God clearly forbids the making of idols in any image or bowing down and worshiping them. And so 
These guys knew if they took part in this ceremony, they would be violating not one, but two of the Ten Commandments. And so that, it made, that made it an easy choice for them. In spite of the fact that they were about to defy the king's orders and risk their own lives for them, the, set, the matter, matter had already been settled. And in this way, they become instructive for us. Because there are times, and there may come a time, when we will be called to take a similar stand for our faith. You know, there are a number of passages in the Bible that encourage us to submit to the authorities and to obey the laws of the land in which we find ourselves living. However, there's an exception. Whenever the laws of a particular place conflict with or violate the higher laws of heaven, then in those instances, you'll find in Scripture that civil disobedience is not only encouraged, it's actually commanded. And we see this throughout Scripture. Let me just give you one example of that. We find Peter and John, after they had healed this lame man on their way to the temple one morning, they, they get arrested because they'd healed this guy and they're drugged before the Sanhedrin, which is the same governing council that had condemned Jesus to die and basically put him on the cross. And they're told by these men no longer to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. It became a, a forbidden name. And here was Peter's response to those men. He said, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And I love his boldness there. Keep in mind, these are the same men that put Jesus on the cross. But for Peter, it was easy, just like it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it should be just as easy for us. If the choice is obeying God or men, we must choose to take a stand and obey God regardless of the outcome. Somebody say amen. It's as simple as that. And so we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taking a stand. And that's the second fill in the blank in your outline. And we see this in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music... They must fall and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. And he said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is a pivotal moment in their lives and a powerful scene in our text. I want you to picture it in your mind's eye. With everyone else, just a sea of humanity, bowing before this image, you have three guys 
who remained standing tall. They must have stuck out like sore thumbs, you know? People are glancing up. Are those guys really standing right now? And eventually, it doesn't take long before it catches the attention of these people who are jealous of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego because of the position they hold there in Babylon. And they make, the, make it known to the king what is happening. And so these guys are shuffled before the king and he gives them one more chance to comply. Now, the pressure that they must have felt in this moment would have been intense. And I also want you to notice that it came from a variety of sources. And I want to drill down into the sources of the pressure they face because I believe these are the same areas where you and I feel pressure from the culture in which we live. Let me explain. We are not being commanded to bow before some golden statue, and we're not being threatened with some fiery furnace, but make no mistake about it, we do face pressure from culture to bow and to conform to the accepted dogma of the day, to embrace a particular worldview. And if you choose not to participate or buy in or go with the flow, there is a price to be paid. So where are the three places they felt pressure? The first is they felt social pressure. Now, this would have been applied by the crowd. According to verse 7, if you go back there, we find that all the nations and people of every language were there and they fell down and worshipped the image. Now, I think it's safe to assume that this crowd would have included uh, these guys' contemporaries, that is, other Jews who had been carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, and perhaps they were tugging on their pant legs, hey, guys, get on your knees, what's the big deal, just join in, and there would have been a, a, a social pressure to conform. You know, Merriam-Webster defines peer pressure in this way, and I quote, a feeling that one must do the same things as other people of one's age and social group in order to be liked or respected. And I know we'd like to think that we grow out of that, and, and certainly there is an added pressure when you're young, but this is something that affects all of us. I think we all, at the end of the day, want to be accepted. Nobody wants to be left out, and, and that's what makes peer pressure such a powerful force. Yet what I love about this story is that it highlights not just the negative effects of peer pressure, but peer pressure works both ways. It can influence you in a positive direction as well. And, and I think that we see that illustrated here. When, when these guys decide to stand, they hadn't perhaps talked about this in advance, but they each know there's no way I'm going to bow. And as they glance over and they see, oh, good, I'm not alone. At least my two buddies are standing with me. It would have encouraged them in their faith and their resolve. And I think it highlights this facet. Of life, You know, sometimes all it takes is just one other person that's willing to stand with you and not bow or bend. Now, if you can't find that other friend, then clearly you should stand on your own, come what may. But I think if you pray and look and seek for a friend or two who are treading the same path and seeking to follow God like you are, God will bless you with those friendships and it can be a powerful influencing force in your life. Nevertheless, we see the social pressure to bow. Secondly, I want you to note the emotional pressure. Now this was provided by the music. 
Perhaps you noticed how on four different occasions we're furnished with an exhaustive list of the various kinds of instruments that were used as part of the musical ensemble. You say, why does he have to keep mentioning the harp, the lyre, the zither, the this, and these are all various kinds of instrumentation? Why does Daniel keep repeating that list? I think it's because music played a pivotal role in this worship ceremony or event, as it often does. You know that we you know, feature music prominently here, and for good reason. God is said to inhabit the praises of his people. We're told in Scripture to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. But we know, and I don't have to convince you, how, how powerful music is. The right kind of music can, can set a mood or create an atmosphere or inspire action. And in this case... Music is being used to encourage people to worship a false god. And you have to know the band must have been awesome. Nebuchadnezzar could have handpicked the best musicians from, you know, the four corners of his kingdom and just put a killer band together. And my guess is that some people were just so enraptured and caught up by just this incredible music that they didn't even think about the fact that they were bowing. And let me say it like this. The same thing can happen to us. Let me explain. You ever been listening to a song and you just find yourself humming or perhaps even singing along without thinking about the the message that those lyrics in that song are conveying? And, uh, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. We're all in that boat. Amen. Oftentimes I'll find that I disregard or overlook the message attached to a popular song just because... I like the melody and it's catchy. And I bring that up because, you know, I I think this this text highlights that and it focuses in on it for good reason. This can be dangerous. You know, our enemy, the devil, is smart. And because he's smart, he'll use anything and everything at his disposal to try to influence us to embrace his worldview. And one of the most effective tools in the devil's bag of tricks has to be music. And by the way, the devil's ties to music are old. They go all the way back and predate even the creation of this world. In fact, there's this really fascinating passage of scripture in Ezekiel 28 that describes the, the devil in his state before he became the devil. He was originally created as an angel. And in that passage, he's described as the anointed cherub who covers. And the text goes on to describe the tabrets and the pipes of his voice. Now, what are those things? Well, pipes relate to wind instruments and a tabret refers to a small drum. So, Basically, what that verse is saying is that when the devil speaks, it's not monosyllabic like your voice or mine, but it's like a pipe organ. There is a multiplicity of sounds that come from him. And this has led some Bible commentators to suggest that perhaps Satan was the original worship leader in heaven. And so when he speaks, it's like an entire orchestra is playing. Considering his background and connection to music, I I think it should come as no surprise to any of us that he would seek to use that to try to spread his 
message. So we need to be careful what we're listening to because your ears, like your eyes, are gates. And, and by those gates, we are allowing our heart and our mind and our priorities to be influenced. Now, don't hear me saying that, you know, you have to go home and immediately burn or break or throw away all of your music that's not, you know, outright Christian in nature. Although, if the Lord would lead you to do that, that's between you and him. What I'm trying to get us to see is the powerful role that music plays in our lives. And perhaps we should just pay a little more attention to what we're listening to because it is influencing you whether you realize it or not. So there's this social pressure. There's this emotional pressure. And then thirdly, they had to face governmental pressure. Now, this came in the form of the threat of the fiery furnace. It was the most obvious. And again, while we don't yet face that kind of pressure in our society, I think it should be noted that there are a number of places around the world where Christians are having to choose whether to go on living or to confess their faith in Jesus Christ. And persecution is a very real thing. And even in our own context, it's becoming increasingly clear that the cost for choosing not to bow the knee to the accepted moral standards of the day, this cost is on the rise. And as an example of that, just the other day I was on the internet and I found a news story about a British woman who was recently arrested in England for silently praying near an abortion center. Keep in mind, she wasn't picketing, she wasn't harassing the people going into the center. She was just standing there quietly, silently praying, and that was enough to get her arrested. And we see kind of that pressure mounting in our own culture, don't we? More and more, the message being communicated from our own government seems to be fall in line and don't rock the boat. It's still okay to practice your private faith so long as your private faith doesn't make its way into the public arena. And again, what I love about this story is that these three guys, they model for us what it looks like to stand in defiance and to stand for God. Despite the pressure being exerted on them from all these various places, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow. And I think I know why. They had already bowed their knee to heaven's king. And if you bow before heaven's throne, you can stand before any earthly king. You want to know where their courage came from? It came from the fact that they knew the God that they loved and worshipped, and that gave them boldness in their defiance of this earthly king. Somebody say amen. amen. So let's look now at their response to the king's final olive branch that he extends. I'll give you one more chance. And here's how they respond in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Praise the Lord. I love this guy's faith. And here we see a description of fearless faith. Go ahead and write that down in your outline. Fearless faith. What we have before us is one of the single 
greatest declarations or statements of faith that you'll find anywhere in your Bible. And so I want to drill down into it because as we look more closely at what they said, you'll see with me that it consists of three different statements. The first thing they do is they express their faith in God's ability to deliver them. They say, our God is able. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that to be true today, that the God you worship is able to deliver you? Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't care how large the difficulty is that's in front of you or how, how large the, the situation looms. Your God is able. He can do anything. I like to put it like this. And you've heard me say from this pulpit that if God can create out of nothing with the sound of his voice, the cosmos and the galaxies and, and light and this planet and you and me, if he can create that with his lips, with his words, then there's nothing that's too hard for him. In fact, the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said this. This is Jeremiah 32, 27. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And the Lord here is asking this rhetorical question. And the obvious implied answer is, uh-uh. There's nothing too hard for God. Perhaps there is some situation in your life that has the word impossible stamped all over it. I hope you leave here today being encouraged, being encouraged by the fact that nothing is impossible with God. That word doesn't even belong in his vocabulary. He is able. Now, believing God can do anything is good. But you should note that that's just the starting point of faith. You see, after telling the king that God was able to deliver them, notice how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go on to say, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. For these guys, God's deliverance wasn't a question of if, but rather how. Let me, let me share this verse with you. This is Psalms verses 50, verse 15. Let's go ahead and read it together out loud. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Notice, he doesn't say, I might deliver you. What does he say? I will deliver you. Did you know this is a promise from God that you can take to the bank? Having said that, there's some tension, perhaps, in your heart, or that I even feel in the room, because you're saying, well, if he promises to deliver us, then why didn't this work out for me? And here's the answer. While the Lord always will deliver us in some way, that's not a guarantee that things are necessarily going to work out according to your plan or how you want them to. And again, this leads us into the third statement that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make. They understood this, which is why after boldly stating that God would deliver them, they add this, even if he doesn't deliver us from your hand, we're not going to bow. In other words... This might not go the way we're hoping it will, the way we're thinking it might, or the way that we're praying it will, but that doesn't change our decision. Our mind has been made. And here's where I see a divergence between certain Christians. You know, there are a lot of Christians out there who have what I would call an invisible clause built into their statement of faith 
that reads something like this. I will follow you, Lord, as long as. And you can fill in the blank with all kinds of things. And mind you, this isn't something that they would openly share. It's, it's something that's more or less implied. And I say that because when that thing happens, as long as my kids remain healthy, as, as long as my marriage stays strong, as long as I have a good job, as long as those things are intact, then they're more or less okay. But when that thing happens, they fall away. Why? Because the clause in their contract with God has been breached. But what we find here is a different clause that these guys had built into their faith statement. Instead of having an as long as clause, these guys had an even if clause. In other words, even if things don't work out the way I want them to, or even if things don't play out the way I'm hoping they will, I refuse to turn away. You know, Job, who has a book in the Old Testament, he endured so much suffering. And he had a similar kind of faith, and he expressed his faith in this way in Job 13, 15. He said, though he slay me, I'm not going to stop trusting him. And would to God that we would build that same kind of resolve into our own hearts. They say, no matter what, we're not bowing, king. And so in response when he sees that their minds were made up and they weren't going to be persuaded otherwise. Verse 19 shares with us, King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unarmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Oh, this is the good part of the story. We've made it here. Let's talk for a few minutes about faith in the furnace. And obviously, this is the part of the story we all Love. This is where God miraculously delivers these three guys from the flames. But what I want you to notice with me is how the Lord delivered them from the flames. And he did so by meeting them in the fire. Now, there's a distinction here. Sometimes God will deliver you by sparing you from having to walk through the trial. An example of that, and and by the way, you know, these are the times we all want, (laughs) where you're facing some hardship, maybe you get a call from the doctor, the lab, the results came in, and and there's some numbers that don't look good, and and so you gather your team, and you begin to pray, and in the follow-up appointment, he says, I don't know what to tell you, but things have changed, and you're fine, and, and, and you're spared from having to walk through that fiery trial, and that's a beautiful thing, and God does do that, and we celebrate that. And we see this throughout Scripture. For instance, in John chapter 6, 
Jesus sends his disciples out onto the, the Sea of Galilee to, to cross ahead of him. And meanwhile, he goes up onto this mountain to pray. And in the middle of the night, as they're rowing along, this storm breaks out. Seems like every time they set foot on a boat, there was some impending storm. And so true to form, the storm comes and, and it's against them. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And at first, they're really afraid. And, and they cry out in fear. But then he reveals that it's him. And they welcome him onto the boat and it says in John 6 21 that after they welcomed him onto the boat that immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going so one second they're in the storm and the next second they're at the shore and again this is what we hope and pray for and we should celebrate those moments however I found that those instances are more the exception to the rule do you know what I mean by that more often than not, instead of sparing us from having to go through the trial, God chooses to meet us in the trial. And I think the story in front of us is a wonderful example of that. And God does promise to meet you in your trial. While he, while he doesn't promise to extract you from every trial, he will meet you in it. And that's a guarantee. We see this in Isaiah 43 too. Let's read this together out loud. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Notice the use of the phrase, when, not if. God says, in your moment of hardship, I will be there. We just need eyes of faith to discern his presence and to see his hand at work even when we're in the flames and the heat gets turned up. But that raises a question. Why? Right? Like, why would God choose to meet us in the fire rather than spare us from it? Well, the answer is, is multifaceted. I want to explore a couple reasons with you this morning. And the first is this. The first reason God lets us pass through the fire is because of the purifying effect that it has in our hearts. Going through trials will purify you in a way that nothing else can. Peter brought this up in his first letter to the church. Evidently, the Christians he was writing to were suffering all kinds of hardships and, and they were beginning to question, why would God allow us, if we belong to him, if we're his kids, then why is he allowing us to endure all of this difficulty? And so Peter responds to them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And this is what he says. Let's read this together out loud. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials... It will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter basically tells these guys, your trials aren't there to destroy you. They are there to refine you. They have a purifying effect. And notice how he compares our faith in this verse to gold that's being refined. Now, some of you will know that when gold is extracted from the earth, it doesn't always look like the beautiful stuff we see in necklaces and jewelry. That's because it's marred by 
dirt and grime, and, and it can be quite dingy looking. And, and, and the process that gold goes through in order to become that beautiful, precious metal that we all love and value is this process called refinement, in which the goldsmith will take the gold and he will put it into a furnace and the temperature will be raised, not to the point of boiling, but to the point where the gold becomes molten liquid. And what this does is it causes all the impurities and all the dross, as it's described, to, to rise to the surface. And then he has a special tool that he uses, and he slakes the gold, and it wipes away all of the impurities. And he, he'll repeat the process until he can look into the gold and see his own reflection. Oh, this is a beautiful parallel. For our Heavenly Father loves us too much to allow us to live with the dirt and the grime of this world. And so he sets about seeking to purify us. And, and just like that gold, he will allow the heat to get turned up in our lives, never to the point of boiling, but only so that you can be blessed. And he knows that you're refined and ready for use when he can look into your life and see his own reflection. And these things get exposed in the fire. And I love the fact that as we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the only thing that gets burned in the fire are the ropes that bind them. Oftentimes in life, we pick up habits that are hurtful to us, things that keep us from fully being able to express our love for God. And we're hindered and hampered by habits and addictions and hang-ups and mindsets. And, and so in the fire, those things tend to get burned away and we are reduced to only the purest form of our faith. And God knows that, which is one of the reasons he allows us to endure or face fiery trials. But there's something else that happens when we experience trials that we see illustrated in this story, and it is this. God will never be more real to you than when you're in the fire. Notice King Nebuchadnezzar looked into the flames, and that's when he saw the one who had the appearance like a son of the gods. In addition to the three men who were thrown into the flames, he also saw a fourth walking around in the fire. And by the way, for any of you who find yourselves in a fire of affliction today, there is someone who walks with you and beside you. And I would suggest for your consideration today that the person Nebuchadnezzar saw on this occasion was none other than Jesus Christ. This is what we call a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate visitation of our Lord prior to his arrival on the scene in Bethlehem. Now, not only did he become real for Nebuchadnezzar, he came real for these guys who, in some sense, already knew God prior to their encounter with him in this moment. But it was primarily intellectual in nature, right? It wasn't until they found themselves in the fire that their relationship with God moved from theoretical to experiential. And can I just suggest that the same thing will happen in your life as you pass through the difficulties and trials of life? And I can speak on this point from personal experience. While I've always known the Lord and I've walked with him for decades now, I've never felt his nearness. I've never experienced his touch. I've never heard his voice to the same degree that I have in the last two years since my own dad went to heaven unexpectedly. 
And I don't know how to explain it other than to say God has, has drawn near to me in a ways that, that I didn't sense his manifest presence prior to that tragedy. And the same testimony has been shared by countless Christians throughout the ages. God becomes more real to us in our trials. If you testify to that, will you say amen? amen. And so there are all these wonderful things that God produces in us and reveals to us through the fires of life. And yet the work of the fire doesn't end there. You have to hear this. It's not just about you and what God's wanting to do in you, but the fire also has an effect on those around you on the outside. You see, there are people who will never come to this church. They're never going to sit in these pews. They're never going to attend a Bible study or, or listen to a Christian podcast or Bible teacher for that matter. But one thing they are going to do is walk through life with you whether it's at work or in your community or in your family, they're going to observe you because you claim to be different. You claim to, to be buoyed by a hope that they don't have. And so this gets heightened and the scrutiny intensifies dramatically in those times and seasons of life where we find ourselves in the midst of a fiery furnace of affliction. And it's in those moments that we have a profound opportunity to point them to Jesus in ways that we will no, in, in no other circumstance be able to do. And that's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read the end of our story beginning in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And don't you just love that he had to ask them to come out? They're like, I don't know, it's kind of nice in here. It's like a little heater. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I love the ending of our story. As we see here, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, praising the God most high, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, how did this happen? It happened after he was able to see the God he didn't believe in. This invisible God became visible to him as he watched these three men pass through the fire. And it wasn't just him either. You'll notice that when they came out of the furnace, all of the governors, prefects, and satraps, and all of these other dignitaries observed the, 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 sta the state of their clothing. They hadn't been harmed by the flames. Their hair wasn't singed. You can picture these guys just running their fingers through their hair. They're saying, amazing. And then one guy goes, yeah, they don't even smell like fire. And it had a profound impact on all of them. 
I just want to speak really honestly and candidly with you here for just a moment more. You are going to find yourself in fiery trials. It's an unavoidable reality of this life. I wish I didn't have to tell you that. I wish I could say, come to Jesus and all your problems will disappear. But that's just not the case. Following Jesus doesn't insulate any of us from having to pass through difficulty. Again, it's just one of those necessities in life. It's a non-negotiable. And yet, while we don't get to say in what trials we'll face, we do get to determine how we'll walk through them. And if you will look for Jesus in your furnace, you will find him meeting you there in the midst of your trial. And it's possible, it really is, it's possible to come through that trial and come out the other side and not grow bitter from it, not bear the scars of it, not get burned by your experiences, but instead become better rather than grow bitter. Why? Because God is faithful. He will meet you in your fire. And if you'll walk with him through it, you will have a platform from which you can testify to the love and grace of Jesus. He is able, as you trust him, he will meet you in the flames. Amen. Perhaps you feel like you're in that space right now through no fault of your own. What should you do? You just open your eyes, start looking because he's there. He's there. He's able to deliver you from it, and he will bring you through it. But even if he doesn't, determine in your heart that you're not going to turn away from him. Right? Like, what if this story played out differently? What if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had burned to a crisp in that furnace? Would that have mean that God failed them? Absolutely not. Why? Because in that moment, they would have immediately been translated and ushered into eternal glory where they would behold the face of their God. You see, while God sometimes delivers us from having to go through trials, and at other times, he delivers us by meeting us in the trial, there are those instances when he chooses in his sovereignty to deliver us by the trial into his everlasting arms. And this is what happens when the patient succumbs to a disease, when the prognosis doesn't change, when somebody dies. In that moment, for the believer, it doesn't mean that they've lost or that their faith didn't work. No, in that moment, their faith became sight. And so for the believer, at the end of the day, we can't lose. Either God is going to deliver us through the trial or from the trial or by the trial into his presence. So we can say with the Apostle Paul who wrote these words in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's something only the Christian can say. And by the way, while that's a beautiful translation, I prefer what the New Living Translation says and how it renders that verse. And here's how it reads. For me, living is for Christ. And dying is even better. Who else can say that? Only the child of God. We can't lose. God is with you. He's walking with you. He's going to meet you. And you will make it through. Either he's going to extract you from it. He's going to walk you through it. Or he's going to usher you by it into his presence. 
I pray this encourages you today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.